Hello, and welcome to Great Exmentations. In this podcast, I dissect individual issues of Uncanny X-Men and explore what makes each issue great or not so great. You can find video versions with bonus content of all these episodes over at my YouTube channel or on my blog at greatexmentations.com. In today's episode, I'm taking a look at Uncanny X-Men number 181. Let's go! This issue, called Tokyo Story, is actually a love story. The X-Men have just finished the mysterious Secret War and have been teleported to Japan where their latest ally, Lockheed's Lady Dragon friend, has grown enormously and is ransacking the city for no apparent reason. The X-Men don't understand why this is happening. The dragon hadn't shown signs of ill content before, so why now? But there's no time to waste figuring it out. They jump into action and try to keep damage to the city minimal while they rescue injured civilians and stop the dragon. The combined might of the X-Men and their Japanese military are useless against the dragon though, and it ends up being Lockheed who saves the day after unceremoniously dumping her and breaking her heart. Ah, so tragic. I think this is an interesting issue with a cool twist, if not necessarily an issue that I'm that interested in. It's always fun to see Lockheed get some prime story time, and I like that we don't really need to have read the Secret Wars crossover in order to understand what's happening here. That said, it still feels like an oddball issue that came out of left field. It's like the writers had an idea for a story, but it didn't really fit in anywhere, so they shoehorned it in here, even though it's far removed from any kind of overarching story engine. I don't mind one-off stories at all, it just felt a little weird and out there, especially the inclusion of a giant dragon as the antagonist. It's not really the typical fare we see for X-Men villains. Then again, the Marvel world does have a monster island comprised literally of giant monsters, so I suppose this sort of clash was only a matter of time. The best bits of this issue are the in-between bits. Once again, I chalk the greatness of this X-Era up to overtext thought bubbles because we get to see the inner workings of the characters' minds and learn where their heads are at. Some of the best stuff in this issue touches on the new relationship between Storm and Professor X. Don't worry, it's nothing romantic. Instead, it's more a case of who's the boss. Both of them are now out in the field on active roster duty, and neither of them have had that talk with the other regarding X-Men leadership yet. It's clear there are some discrepancies over who should be barking the orders, be it Storm as the X-Men's official leader, or Xavier as the X-Men's founder. And while they don't really dissect this issue in this particular book, the problem is glaring enough that even the other X-Men are taking note of the issue. So this is a cute, standalone story that plants a few seeds for future issues. I think it's meant to be a bridging book, something that, like, connects story arcs, and as such, I don't mind it. We get to see the mutants use their powers, and we learn more about their characters when they're in battle. What more can I really hope for in a book? Here are some of the highlights for me from Uncanny X-Men number 181. Professor X Charlie is one of the standout characters in this issue. I'll be honest, I usually find him pretty boring and stoic. The wise mentor thing has never really been an engaging trope for me. What makes Charles engaging now is that we're finally seeing him in battle. He's taking a much more active role with the team since having regained the use of his legs, and he's actually fielding missions with them. Hither to now, he's only ever been on the sidelines, unable to physically help his students, but always there monitoring in some telepathic way or another. Now that he's finally on the front lines himself, he gets to test the might of his own metal instead of always putting the troops' lives in peril ahead of his own. 
What makes the situation all the more interesting is that he's not great out there. For one thing, he's inexperienced AF. He hasn't gone through the same rigorous danger room training sessions that the others have, and it sort of shows both in his lack of physical finesse and also in his lack of emotional control. Sure, he knows how to coordinate teamwork, and he works together with the others to rescue the civilians, but he's not very, excuse the wordplay, quick on his feet. He ends up being more of a hassle than a help to the team, and actually derails the rescue mission when he thinks he's been paralyzed again. He panics after Sunfire's carelessness buries him in the rubble and sends out a telepathic shriek that pretty much immobilizes his nearby teammates. He's calmed down by Wolverine, of all people, and Colossus helps him out of the rubble, but it turns out to be Xavier's ego that suffers the most damage. Sure, he has a few bumps and scratches, but his legs are fine and he's ultimately okay. He acknowledges that he overreacted and is ashamed of himself, knowing that he wasted Colossus' resourceful strength on himself when there were still innocent civilians in greater danger and in need of greater help. The irony of the situation is that, as the seasoned teacher, he'd be the first to tell his students not to let emotions get the best of them, so it would be expected that he should be able to do the same. If Professor X was ever seen as too staunch a character to be relatable to, this moment of panic really gives him some much-needed depth. It shows he's just as fallible and has the same sort of flaws as any of the other X-Men. It's a shameful moment for the Professor, but it's also very humbling, and he learns that he'll need to work on his own self-control if he ever hopes to be an asset instead of a hindrance to the team while they're on a mission. Storm Storm continues to show her competency as an ex-leader in this book, which is nothing new at this point. We all know she's got the mojo for the gig. But her situation is a little bit more complicated now that Xavier is taking along on the missions too. Storm is serenely confident throughout the issue. We only ever explore the inner workings of her mind during the heat of battle, when the dragon's winds start to overpower her. She doesn't even bat an eyelash when Xavier barks orders to the others right in front of her. She's the consummate professional and doesn't take offense to his toe-stepping, at least not that I can tell. To Xavier's credit, he immediately feels bad about undermining her authority, and to the others' credit, they don't move until Storm says to jump, but it's clear enough that there are some major power dynamics that need sorting out now. Xavier hasn't been the de facto leader of the X-Men for quite some time now, but that doesn't mean it still wouldn't be a hard habit for him to shake. It's probably like riding a bike or whatever. Your memory just operates on autopilot and you slide right back into it. I imagine Storm's game plan is to address the issue of leadership after the matter at hand has been dealt with. She would never jeopardize a mission to talk politics. Doing so would only inflict more chaos into an already chaotic situation. It's a matter that really does need addressing though, even if it is an uncomfortable situation for a student to confront her teacher. It ultimately comes down to what's best for the team, and it's just not safe for two people to be giving potentially conflicting orders to others. And not only that, but Storm deserves this. She has literally turned herself inside out for this role, and for Charles to pull rank on her now would be a devastating blow to her newly formed identity. Wolverine Wolverine is probably the second standout for me in this issue. What I found interesting about Wolverine in this issue was how acute his senses were. We already know that he's got enhanced hearing and smelling and all that jazz, but it's his brain that proves to be just as sharp in this issue. 
He immediately clues into the shifting power dynamics between Storm and the Professor, and while he doesn't bring it up, it's enough for us to know that the others are noticing it too. He's also the one who scolds Xavier during Charles' panic attack. His telepathic cry sears Wolverine's mind, but instead of helping him, Wolverine does what he's supposed to be doing, and that's helping the helpless civilians instead. In a way, he's teaching something to Xavier without being teachery about it. Even though Xavier is buried in rubble, he's essentially fine, whereas there are literally people out there who are dying and need assistance ASAP. Wolverine finds a mother and her daughter, and while he saves the girl, he's a bit too late for the woman and she dies. I'm not saying that the outcome would have been different had he shown up any microseconds earlier, but it's an interesting thought that perhaps Charles' psychic outburst caused Wolverine's hesitation and may also have caused that woman her life. Wolverine knows that there's a lesson in this mission for Charlie, first with him undercutting Storm's authority and next with him freaking out over his own well-being. He knows that Xavier needs to remember how to be a hero again and the self-sacrifice that comes with that. I like that Wolverine doesn't detract from the mission to get all preachy with Charles. Like Storm, Wolverine is conditioned to place the mission first. Important stuff is happening all around him and there will be time enough to deal with all the politics and lessons later. Wolverine's characterization is both gruff and calm. He's grizzled but not unruly, and even though he's a tough guy through and through, his heart always shines brighter than he ever wants to admit it does. He can't help but do the right thing no matter the cost to himself, like when he agrees to take care of the recently orphaned girl himself. Lockheed and the Dragon Ah, the lovers. Well, not really. It's more of a one-sided, unrequited love as it turns out, but my god, the things that they do for love. Lockheed and the Dragon met during the Secret War crossover, and when the Beyonder teleported the X-Men back to Earth, she was teleported with them. Although after she arrived, she ended up being much, much larger than she originally was. And apparently much angrier too, as she began unleashing wanton destruction all across the Tokyo Prefecture for no apparent reason. I love the displays of power, how the dragon topples skyscrapers with ease and how its wings flap to create huge gusts of wind. There was something really fun in watching the X-Men fight a plain old monster. Yeah, it felt removed from the usual X-Men mythos, but who cares? What are comics if not imaginative? The panels of the Japanese military blasting at the dragon really reminded me of those old Godzilla movies where tiny toys blasted away at the gigantic beast. I wonder if this issue was meant to be an homage to Godzilla in some way. It surely had to be. Even though the action is exciting, I can't help but feel bad for the dragon as the army attacks her. Is it her fault that she's behaving so erratically? The X-Men say it themselves, she was a good little dragon back in the Secret War, so what's changed in her now? Something must have happened to this dragon in order to make her act this way, and to me, that's just as important a detail to figure out as it is to stop her. The plot begins to thicken after Professor X mind probes her and reveals that everything is in order. There's no aggression of which to blame this on. So then what's the deal? Why is she acting so cray-cray? In the world of the Secret War, the dragon was serene and calm, but here on Earth, she's acting hostile and aggressive. As a mythical creature, is the dragon attuned to her natural surroundings? And is her behavior a product of what Earth is in fact doing to her? When I read this, a part of me couldn't help but wonder if there was some sort of analogy at play here. That we as humans have ravaged the Earth to a point where a natural entity can't even recognize herself in it. 
that we exude such a vicious energy into the ether that this is the Earth's manifestation in its cruelest form. I don't think that's actually the case, and I'll admit that I'm thinking way too deeply about it, but it's an interesting thing to consider. Anyway, I digress, but the dragon's defenses do flare up after the professor's mind probe, and she throws a building at him in retaliation. It results in Xavier being buried under the rubble I was talking about earlier, and yada yada, we already covered all of that. The day is ultimately saved by Lockheed after he confronts the dragon and stops her from killing Storm, Sunfire, and a bunch of children. The two dragons roar at each other in a lover's quarrel, which, gratefully, the writers do not translate for us. But in the end, the dragon flies away after Lockheed basically breaks up with her by saying the dragon equivalent of, Never loved ya. And yet again, I can't help but feel bad for the dragon. The expository boxes make the whole exchange sound like Lockheed broke her little heart. It seems like Lockheed was never interested in her romantically to begin with, because after all, he's already got a lady love, and it's none other than Kitty Pride. No one can take that place in his heart, not even another of his own kind. So with the retreat of the dragon, so too retreats the threat, but not the answer as to why. Why did the dragon cause such a ruckus in the first place? The final reveal shows that the dragon wasn't causing destruction for destruction's sake at all. She wasn't manipulated, she wasn't angry, she wasn't doing anything out of the norm of her biological programming. It wasn't a case of Earth affecting her natural senses like I predicted. She was just a dragon lady in love, and she was collecting raw material to build a nest. It's something that you can't really fault her for. It explains why her thought processes were normal when Xavier Psy probed her, and also why she defended herself when she was being attacked. Her intention was never to destroy a city or attack a human. She probably doesn't even really understand what a city is. She was just doing what came natural to her and preparing for what she hoped would be a long and happy life with Lockheed. Part of me wonders if the destruction might have also been a way for the dragon to prove her love to Lockheed. Like, maybe she saw it as some sort of grand gesture or something? Maybe destruction is dragon language for love. She obviously hadn't considered just how much of a human side Lockheed possesses. He loves this earth. It's his home. Seeing her destroy it like that and nearly destroying his friends in the process nearly destroyed him too. He had to send her packing. This was not a relationship he wanted any part of. Sunfire It's always a treat for me when Sunfire shows up. He's cocky and arrogant and always heats things up for the X-Men. He stirs the pot right from the get-go when he chides his cousin for romanticizing a foreigner, but he agrees to go out and help the heroes nonetheless. But don't get it twisted, his intentions aren't totally altruistic here. Yeah, he's playing the hero to save his country because of course he loves it, but he's mostly doing it because Sunfire would never let an American superhero show him up on his own soil. Sunfire is here to showboat as Japan's foremost hero, and that means formidable displays of power regardless of the consequences. He saves Professor X from being crushed by a building, but neglects to pulverize the falling debris resulting from his solar blast, and thus begins the Professor Gets Buried and Freaks the F Out panic attack. Watching both Sunfire and Professor X in action on the battlefield really hammers home what it means to train as a unit. Neither of these two have really done that, and it shows all too well. The both of them are making saves and doing heroic deeds, but they're still operating too independently. A team will never function smoothly or fluidly that way. 
If Sunfire had adequate battlefield training, he would have known that the work isn't done when you smash the giant chunk of metal. It continues until you smash all of the resulting debris too. This sort of knowledge only comes with experience and training. It's training which Sunfire denied himself after he denied membership to the X-Men. All that said, Sunfire certainly is not a bad guy. He's definitely still a hero. He's just a hero who's really after his own glory. Mariko. It was cute seeing Wolverine's lover in this issue. Everything about this issue revolved around love, it seems. Mariko is the established lord of her clan, and she's the one who orders Sunfire to help the X-Men. She doesn't do much else in this issue, to be honest, but I liked her presence here because it once again showed us the softer side of Wolverine's edges. He's so often described as an animal instead of as a man that it's hard to peg him as someone who could love another human being, but seeing her on the actual page proves both her existence and that his feelings are mutually felt by her. Madeline and Cyclops Madeline is a little bit upset here. Cyclops has been gone for a week and she's just expected to carry on as usual without so much as a word from him. She's ecstatic when he appears from out of nowhere, but then starts to lay into him. I don't think it's very fair for her to be attacking him. It's not like he asked to participate in the secret war, but she can't help it. It seems Madeline still needs to come to terms with Cyclops' life as a superhero. This was never an issue for Jean. Jean could understand the X aspect of his life because it was something that she shared with him as Marvel Girl. But with Maddie, a regular human, there's no basis of comparison that she can draw. It's a world totally foreign to her, way outside her realm of expertise and comfort. It's sensational, but it's also nerve-wracking, because there's no telling if Cyclops will live or die any day of the week. It will take some adjusting on her part if she truly does want to stay with Cyclops forever. Because if we know anything about Slim by now, it's that he takes his responsibilities as an X-Man to the grave and puts them above all else. Senator Kelly Senator Kelly makes only a brief cameo, and it's during the issue's epilogue. He's lobbying at Washington, as politicians are wont to do, and tries to push through his latest bill proposal. It's a very haunting final panel to end on, and it's all the scarier by what it means from an allegorical standpoint in our real world. Kelly's bill is a discriminatory bill that would honestly set back so much progress that has been made for mutant civil rights. It's something that creates devastating ripples for many years to come in the X-Men's lives. That bill, of course, is the Mutant Affairs Control Act, or as we know it better, the Mutant Registration Act. It's haunting for me to see this page because, well, I know what happens after this, and things just don't go well for anybody. Fashion There is nothing truly groundbreaking in terms of fashionable moments for this issue, but we do get some nice looks. Rogue isn't heavily featured because she was dispatched to go check on Kitty Pride early on, but I certainly felt impacted by her costume. The orange outfit is something Rogue wore for only a short period of time before trading it in for her trademark green, but I love how it plays with her proportions. She's wearing a big, bulky, almost half-caped turtleneck that gives her some interesting angles in her shoulders. As the garment flows down, it's cinched at the waist by a patented superhero in sash belt, giving her a truly triangular shape overall. I also love Xavier's superhero outfit, more for its camp than for its actual style. It's basically just a yellow onesie with a big giant black X across the chest, which is really nothing to write home about, and when you look at him side by side with his fellow X-Men, it makes him look out of touch with the costuming, but I still really like it.
Storm is flawless as always. For a woman who only recently started dressing the part of a badass chick, she's certainly got the wardrobe down. The pieces by themselves are all very basic. There's a black halter top, black pants, thick studded choker, and crisscrossing white belts, but it's the essence of them all together and on her body that specifically give them life. The true winner of this issue's fashion game is Cyclops, old Slim Shady himself. Nothing screams comfortable in my own masculinity more than what he's wearing. A crop top tank top, scrunched up socks, and the tiniest pair of cut off denim booty shorts that I ever did see. Just wow. I don't know who has been giving him outfit tips, but please continue to do so. I am absolutely enthralled by this entire combination. Cyclops is a pride parade in pure heterosexual glory, and I've never been more proud of him. At This issue, I'm highlighting one of Marvel's own ads. I just couldn't pass it up after seeing the Hulk wearing an oversized diaper and safety pin. He's a 1984 baby, and he's promoting 1983 prices for this year's comic book subscriptions. People used to fill these forms out and receive comic books in the mail, though for the life of me, I don't think I ever personally knew anyone who comic shopped that way. I don't even know if I was allowed to where I lived. In any case, I think Hulk is looking great as Marvel's poster boy for this event, and I hope he at least scored an extra miniseries as payment for this kind of service. X-Mail This time, it's Wolverine's turn to step up into the editorial office and answer some fan mail. They really do a great job nailing his calm but intimidating characterization. He threatens some of the fans for coming for his girl Mariko and sets others straight about their fan conspiracy theories. But the highlight of this letters page comes from AJ, Andy, and the rest of the gang at Chuck's. They take a front to the inaccurate depiction of the Anchorage International Airport from a few issues ago, indicating that the errors were so blatant that even the department mop could have done a better job. Ouch, that's laying it on a little harsh, guys. This issue was published in 1984, which is long before the writing team could ever have pulled up a quick Google image search to solve the matter. The letter contends that the team should have, at the very least, taken a trip to Alaska in order to scout out the scene before they drew it. And hey, that's not such a bad idea. I mean, why wouldn't I write off a quick trip to Alaska as a business expense? It sounds like a plan, guys. Catch y'all at Chuck's. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, you can watch this in video form over on YouTube or read the written version at my blog, greatexmentations.com. You can also go to my website if you just want to see some straight-up issue summaries without any of this commentary fluff. Thanks again for tuning in, and be sure to come back soon for more Great Exmentations.